Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. We are continuing in the book of Esther. We are going to conclude chapter 9 and 10. And last time in Esther, we'll go over our little review here. Haman was killed on the same gallow that he had made for Mordecai. We saw the reversal that took place where he had planned the annihilation of the Jewish people and ended up being his own annihilation that took place. We see that Esther was given the house to, that belonged to Haman, right? And it wasn't literally a house. It was his whole earnings. And then we saw that Esther in turn gave the keys to that house to Mordecai so that he became the one who now oversaw all that Haman had overseen. And then we saw that Esther actually recited poetry. I didn't know what to put up for poetry, so I didn't have a picture for that. But then you're going to love this one. We saw in this that, where's the picture? We saw that the tables were turned. (laughs) That's all I could think of for that. Okay. We saw also that Mordecai had a new suit, right? He was clothed with royal robes. He was given this new wardrobe because he was put in a position of power, which is where we take up today. This morning, I'm going to talk about justice, how to succeed, how to celebrate, and making toy models. Okay, turn with me to chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. We're seeing again, there's this reversal theme throughout this book. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the Satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Last week we talked about how there's this change where the prey actually became the predator where those who were being hunted now were the ones on the aggressing side. And we see that Mordecai, who was just sentenced to be killed, now becomes the one who people are fearing. 
And we talked about what do we do when we are the people in power and we're seeing what's taking place now that Mordecai and the Jews are in the position of power. Verse 5, it continues. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Pashandatha and these other people. And the 10 sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So we see 500 people are killed in the capital city, as well as all of Haman's sons. And I don't know how you feel when you start reading these kinds of things. Sometimes we read things of violence and it's like, oh man, that's kind of not a good thing. 500 people being killed is a lot of people being killed. And it's not really, uh, doesn't make you feel good. And we ask the question, at least I ask the question, is this okay? Corrine reminded me, she was talking with my daughter last night. They went out to eat and they were talking and we were talking about how a lot of times people don't feel they have the right to question. And my daughter reminded Corrine of a time when she was just in one of the Sunday school classes. And as she was in the Sunday school class, she started asking questions. It just didn't make sense to her. So she started asking questions. And if you know my daughter, she's got a pretty strong personality where she, she'll speak her mind. Um, whether you want it or hear it or not. And and so she was telling this teacher, well, what about this? What about this? And the teacher took it as she was questioning their authority. And so they told on her. They said, you know, she started asking a lot of questions. And I don't remember the conversation, but my daughter told Corrine, but dad said to the teacher, well, she has a right to ask questions. And I'm so proud of myself, not even knowing that I remember that. As I spoke last week, you have a right to ask questions. The scripture is written in a way that prompts questions. It is written to engage us, not just to tell us how to think or what to do. Yes, there were laws that the nation of Israel were commanded to follow, but there are also a lot of things that were made to cause us to think. And when we see something that strikes us as maybe not just, then we have the right to question those things. Verse 11 continues. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And so here Esther has this right to say, okay, things are good. Thank you. But she doesn't. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are on Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the 10 sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on their plunder. 
verse 16. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, this is not just Susa, the capital, this is all in the provinces, also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hand on the plunder. 75,000, that's a lot of people. When we think of justice, I wonder, does this seem just? That's an awful lot of people being killed. And, And why did Esther have to display Haman's sons? They're already dead. It's not like putting them up there on the gallows was gonna make them any more dead. But she's doing it really because she wants to make a public statement. And what a harsh statement. We've seen pictures like this where people have been captured, have been strung up and, and hung and their bodies displayed. And when maybe you've seen those things and it causes just a, a awful feeling within you, right? Especially if it's one of our soldiers or someone who is part of our allies, then we see those things and we think that's terrible. But now here it's being done in the opposite way. And, and It's important to notice that in verses 15, 16, and 17, it says that they laid no hand on their plunder. In other words, they didn't do this just to get their stuff. And there are some things that are mentioned of what or who they did this to. Its connection isn't the same as we saw in Haman that just wanted to kill them because they were Jews. We see it was those who hated them and it was those who sought to do them harm. So it wasn't just anyone you want to and then you can get their stuff. Remember, Haman's command was that you could kill them and then you could take their stuff, their plunder. Here we see that they could bring harm to anyone who was after them trying to cause harm, but they did not take their stuff. So there is a limit in this violence. Now, I don't think this was by any means a surgical strike. I don't think this was without overflow. Violence seldom is. And the story isn't telling us this is okay and this was the best thing that could be done. It's telling us this this is what was done, but it also is giving us some constraints. And we have to take in mind or consideration when we're reading something like this when it was taking place what the culture was at the time, what the world was at that time, and how things played out were many times normal to them, which seemed horrific to us. Again, thankfully, things have progressed where we look at these things as horrific. I think that is progress. But we also have to, in some ways, trust Esther's decision. She seems to have been a woman who is wise in how she did things. She was very patient, very orchestrating, and when she would have conversation and very intentional in what she would do so that it would be completed and be fulfilled. Perhaps the displaying of Haman's son prevented further violence or made the statement. We are seeing and reading that Mordecai is now the person that they are fearing because he is in such power. And so all these things have to be taken into consideration. But it doesn't mean we have to think it's all okay. 
75,000 people being killed is not okay. It might be necessary at that time in that culture. Maybe things could have been done better, but we weren't there. We don't know. But today, we don't have to live by this standard. Do you understand? It's like, hey, they're enemies. Let's kill them. After all, in the Bible, it says. Because that has been done in the past. That's the critique many people have of the Quran. It's a violent book. Tell that to Esther. Right? There's times where the Bible is a violent book. It doesn't mean we have to have the same mentality today. It is telling us what happened. And hopefully today we have more insight, more ability to bring change about than killing 75,000 people. And so as this is being brought to bear, the idea of justice comes into mind and we have to, again, take into account where and when it happened and kind of trust Esther was doing what she thought needed to be done at that time and the writer is really telling us what happened. Verse 20, we're going to continue. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. We see the continuing reversal taking place. These used to be a day of sorrow, but now it's a gladness of mourning. Now it's a holiday. You were going to be annihilated. Now you became victorious. And so Mordecai says, I want you to mark this down in your calendar. And it became a festival that the Jews continue to this day in March. There is this celebration that they continue of Purim, which is the casting of lots. The whole idea is when Haman cast lots to decide when he was going to annihilate the Jews, the Jews have now been able to cast the lots and take this in reversal. And so uh, they'll celebrate it in Jerusalem and many other places, and you'll see the kids running around kind of like Halloween. They'll be wearing witches' costumes, and you'll think, what does that have to do with you know this Esther? But it's really the idea of evil, and they have these little pastries called Haman's ears that they eat, Right? Hey, if they taste good, why not, right? And so it is a continued celebration of this day. And we start to see that this is something that is important in their time and what they're doing, how they're continuing the idea of remembering what has happened. Jump down to verse 29. Then Queen Esther the daughter of Abihal and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming these second letter of Purim. That's again the holiday. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obliged them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. 
We see in these verses what's called a chiastic structure. There's that same reversal that takes place. Verse 29, it's Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew. But then in verse 31, it's Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther. There is a reversal that takes place now in who is mentioned first. First it was Esther, now it's Mordecai. Because things are changing in this place. This book and this story has the idea, kind of with all the exile stories that we see in Scripture, that of of Joseph, that of Daniel, of this kind of happy ending. Right? The the bad guys are, are... causing harm they're bringing persecution to the jewish people the good guys and then the good guys are lifted up and end up overcoming the bad guys and and that's how it's supposed to be right and everyone lived happily ever after kind of a story right that's how we want the story to end it gives us the satisfaction of yay the the bad guy didn't win he got his just reward and the good guys are vindicated and they're able to live and have a party and continue celebrating. That's the way it's supposed to be. But that's not how my week has been or my life for that matter, right? How about you guys? Have you had any happy ever afters? If you do, don't raise your hand. We'll all get mad at you, right? It's, that's not the way things go very often In many ways, our our lives are like the book of Esther, not that they have a happy ever after ending, but they're like Esther in that God seems to be silent. Remember, there's no mention of God in any way throughout the book. And so there is fasting where Esther says, tell everyone to fast before I go to the king. But there is no voice that comes down from heaven that answers that fast. There, there is the feasting and indulgence of the king and Haman. We see this carrying on, but there's no fire from heaven that comes down and strikes them. We, we see that Mordecai raises his voice. Esther finds his voice or her voice, but God's voice is strangely silent throughout the book. And it's as if life rolls on. Things continue. And we might fast and not hear anything. And we might see people indulging and not get retribution. And it just continues. There is something that takes place, though, that I think is important. You see... The courage and the cunning of Esther count for a lot in the success of what takes place. And she could not be courageous and she could not be cunning if she did not have an intention and a belief that she was following. And so there is a faith that undermines this story, but it shows up in the courageous acts It shows up in the cunning behavior. I mean, we even see the the cheating and the defrauding of Haman that leads him to a position of importance. They have found in studies 
If you are going to be successful, the most important thing that will help you to be successful isn't where you were born. It isn't your social class. It isn't your education. All those things could be helpful. The most important thing and common denominator in the people who succeed is perseverance. It's the people who continue to move forward step by step, even if it takes years. And what we see in the book of Esther is this persevering because they believe in something and they are going to work to accomplish it. Even though the work is hard, she had to put her own life at stake. She had to step into an arena that was difficult. And so she is stepping into this area not knowing how it's going to turn out, but believing this is what needs to be done. So even though the voice of God seems silent, the faith in what God wants us to do helps us to persevere and to continue moving forward. And that's what we see taking place in the book of Esther. There's no guarantees in life. And our story, the the Christian story, has Jesus at the center and at the culmination of of Jesus' work He is crucified, and on the cross he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a lot of reasons why he would say that. He is quoting the Psalms, but more than a simplistic answer is what is taking place. And the identification that Jesus has with us We have to know that Jesus knows what it's like to be where we are. It's important. I spoke to a woman last night who is suffering from cancer and a lot of ailments. She's had one leg amputated and might have the other one amputated. And she's talking about how she doesn't want to go through the chemotherapy and how she really has an end in mind of her life and is aware of that, but is determined to stay engaged as much as she can. And I was just overwhelmed with her courage. I was overwhelmed with the conversation I was having with her. And what do you tell someone who might lose their other leg? What do you tell someone whose cancer spread to their bones and is dealing with thyroid problems and has all these ailments where she is in pain all the time, but she does not want to just numb herself because she wants to be engaged with the people around her? What, What do you say to someone like that? I don't have words, but I have a Savior who knows what it's like to feel the things that she's going through. To feel like, God, where are you? See, Jesus on the cross didn't say, hey, no worries. Three days, I'll be back. This is all cool, you guys. 
chill out, see you on the flip side, right? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because that's what he was feeling because that's what you and I feel at times. That is the struggle that we go through. And it's important for us to understand that. I heard a story of a man who was dying of cancer and and he would have these lucid moments where he could speak and then these moments where he just couldn't and he would kind of be absent for a period of time. And one of those times when he was having a lucid moment, he started speaking and he said, I saw Jesus. This was right before he passed. He said, I saw Jesus. And Jesus said, I know. I know it's hard to be human. See, I know, I know is what Jesus says to us. And though his voice is silent, his presence is there in deeper ways than we could understand. It is close to us, not just in ideology, but in who he was and what he went through to experience humanity. You see, especially for a Jew to to live a long life and die old in age was a blessing. To be executed and to die younger than your years had before you was a tragedy. But to die on a cross was a curse and a shame. And Jesus dying on the cross was typifying the worst kind of death a Jew could die. And it's that way intentionally so that we can live knowing that he knows what it is like to be human. We wouldn't have any of this if Jesus didn't give the example of it for us and trusting that even as he trusted God through the pain, through the motion that he felt, resurrection did take place. But the only thing that resurrects us is God's memory of us. The only thing that brings us back is God remembering us. And that's what Jesus had to trust, and that's what we have to trust as well. Now, it's interesting because their celebration, God has delivered us. It was this feasting. It was this drinking. It was the carrying on of this celebration of, look what God has done for us. What's our celebration? Our celebration is breaking bread, a body that was broken for us, pouring out that cup, which is blood poured out for us. There, there is something else that takes place that we celebrate as well. And how we celebrate is important. Celebration is an important part of our life. It connects us to living fully, right? A good deal of the Old Testament had to do with these kinds of things, of celebrating. In chapter 8 of Nehemiah, when they found the law, there was a celebration. And everyone heard the law for the first time after years. And they were aware of all the things that they had been not doing in accordance with the law. And they were sad. And and they said, don't be sad. This is a cause for celebration. God has revealed himself to you. Go home and celebrate. Eat. Drink. Have a good time. 
and share. And here we see the same thing. Give food. It's a time where we are supposed to be acknowledging these things and it's supposed to be a happy point in their life. And for the spiritual journey, what we need to do is find our ability to celebrate in the things that God is doing. And sometimes what we have to do is find a a celebration even in our spiritual disciplines. Right, the things that we know we're supposed to do, that we have to do because it is the right thing to do. We're committed to these things and we have to discipline ourselves to do them, but we have to learn how to celebrate in those things. Ideally, finding passion for them, it gives us the ability to kind of enjoy them. Otherwise, if we're not in it with our heart, it's hard to be in it. Right? The psalmist said that in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do, do we find that pleasure forevermore or is it just a labor? Because if it's just a labor, I don't want to do it. A few years ago, I was playing softball. I guess I got to go back. I played softball for a few years, but... Um, one year when I was playing softball, I slid, my foot caught under the base, and I turned my ankle. It's my left ankle. I remember it. Still hurts when it gets cold. It's my injury I can talk about. But I was safe, okay? And I remember we were on vacation, and the kids were all small, and we were at the beach. I turned my ankle, had to wear a cast while Corrine watched the four children at the beach, right? She's happy about that. Year later, same thing, playing softball. Our team goes into the finals, so I've got to go because they need me. Um, We are at the beach again, and I leave the family vacation, go... My wife's scowling at me right now looking at this. Uh, I leave family vacation, go to play softball, and my wife tells me, you better not get hurt. I'm like, I'm not going to get hurt. I'm not going to get hurt. Playing softball, I, I make it to first base, and then there is a line drive hit to the second baseman, And so I start to run, but have to dive back to first base, sprain my shoulder, diving back to first base, but I was safe. Just want you guys to know. (laughs) Didn't bother me too much. I was feeling, man, I felt something happen there. And so I play the rest of the game. Pretty soon my arm is just getting heavy. It's just getting heavy and heavy. And I'm driving home and it's like, oh, something's wrong. And I'm thinking, I can fake it. And I'm like, I can't fake this. I can't even move my arm. And so we get back there, and I have to tell my wife, I hurt my shoulder, and we have to go to ER. And I'm in a sling for the rest of the vacation while Kareem watches the kids play at the beach. In these times where I was laid up, I had to find something to do, right, to entertain myself. And so what I did is I started making models, And I would get a model and I would just invest all my time and I loved it. Kareem wasn't so excited about it, but I loved it, right? It was something where you just can get so intricate. And 
when I was a kid and I made models, they used to drive me crazy because I didn't have the patience for it. They'd always have these pictures of the car or whatever it was, and it looked so cool. And then you get it, and it's just a piece of plastic, right? And then you glue it, and it's got glue marks all over it. And trying to get things, it just came out terrible. But as I got older and was able to kind of deal things a little bit more, I had more coordination or something, I was actually able to focus, and I started to enjoy it. And pretty soon, all those little details became something that I actually enjoyed, this is now fun. Oh, hon, you go off with the kids. I'm going to stay here and make a model. I'm going to have a good time. When things change and our spiritual disciplines become actually pleasures, when the things that we have to do become the things we want to do, You know, it's funny how people say, oh, my kids hate to read. Well, they might not read books, but they read the story of Zelda on a tablet, right? And they talk about it like, oh, yeah, I know it goes Zelda, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, where'd you get this? Oh, I read it. I love to read comic books. I don't read them now. I mean, when I was younger, right? I mean, but if you like reading something, then you do it. If you like doing something, it becomes easy. It becomes a a pleasure. How do we take spiritual disciplines and turn them into the pleasure, enjoying these things, making them a a part of our life and, and finding joy in them so that our life becomes a celebration? It becomes the ability to take the things that are part of who we are and celebrate them because of what they are to us. And you see, affection should always be something that's joyous. It should always be something that makes us feel alive. And affection to God should be the same thing. It should be something that fills us with joy. It's like when I see my grandson and he'll run past all of you and hug me, right? It brings joy to my heart because that's my grandson. And when he buries his head on my shoulder, it's like nothing better than this. And you see, that's what I want with my God. That's what I I long for. That's what I want to celebrate. I want our joy to be full, I want these things to be a part of our life. In chapter 10, we read in verse 3, chapter 10 is only a few verses, and it says, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Chapter 10, Esther is strangely absent. This book has been all about her, but then in the bibliography, when the credits roll, her name doesn't show up. It's kind of outrageous. It's kind of like, how could they forget her? She was the one who was courageous. She is the one who said, If I perish, I perish. She is the one who took the chance and went before the king. And what's amazing in the reversal, remember Queen Vashti refused to go and see the king. And then she was feared 
because all the women are going to act like her and rebel. And so she was cast out. Esther, in turn, actually goes to the king when she wasn't summoned, puts her life at risk. And now at the end, she is the one who are writing commandments that are being observed over all the provinces. If anyone should have been feared, it should have been Esther. Look at what she ends up doing. Look at who she ends up becoming. And then she's not mentioned at all. Strangely just disappears. It's one of the major turnarounds that seem to take place. It's that reversal that happens. The significant person now is a person who no longer has significance. Now it's all Mordecai, her cousin. It's all about him. He didn't put his life at risk, not like she did, but now he's getting that glory. Esther had subverted the hierarchy, but now she's not mentioned. Mordecai, he's honored, he's speaking out. But this really talks a lot about the status of women at the time. And though it seems like, well, nothing changed, this story is the beginning of a change. The, the storyteller is giving us something to think about. And, and there's this kind of thought bomb that is being planted in this book that starts to explode and, and help our minds to think through these things. And we start to see that Esther actually looks a lot like Jesus, who humbled himself, came of no reputation. It wasn't about her, it was about her people. And she sees that those things start to take place. And I think what we can get from this book, again, is that even the most powerful people struggle and go through times where it seems that God is absent. At times where our faith has to carry us past the emotion of what we're going through. The fact that he is feeling absent is more easy sometimes than feeling his presence. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see Job say, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. The psalmist says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? The book of Esther is not about God's absence, but maybe it's about his being hidden. Maybe it's about him not being present the way we would want him to be present. Maybe it's not everything unfolding the way we think it should or him showing up the way we would want him to. He's present but unrecognized. And we can see that in Esther herself, right? She, she's, the book's written in her name, but she doesn't have a name in the bibliography. When it talks about this is where you can find out all about it, she's not mentioned in those things. And the truth is God doesn't always get the credit he deserves. But he's not begging for it. God's silence can drive us crazy. At least me. 
when, when there's important things that I just see as so important, I want God to show up in some way. I want him to speak into that circumstance somehow. I want him to give me discernment, give me a word, give me a revelation, give me a miracle, give me a sign, give me something. But most of the time, for me, that doesn't happen. And that silence makes me crazy. But you know what? It's a good thing when God is absent if I am looking for a God that isn't true. In other words, if I'm looking for God to be what I want him to be, I'm glad he's silent so that he can be who he really needs to be in my life. So that it's not my manipulation of how I want this to end. It's actually his working on what is beneficial and what is best. And so it's better that he's silent than he's a pawn in my game. It's better that he's silent so that he can be true to who he really is. And just like in the book of Esther where we see God does come through even though he's not mentioned we find that he's been doing that throughout history. He's been showing up. But notice that he shows up in the lives of those who put their faith in him and do what they are called to do. Those who are courageous, those who are diligent, who push through and make these things happen. And you see, this idea bomb of Esther is that this woman who was taken, made to be someone's wife, could be the person that could save her people and could rewrite the laws of a nation. Who could think of something like that? You see, and I think God is dropping these kinds of thought bombs in our minds and in our hearts all the time. But a lot of times they're just bigger than we feel we can step into. You see a need and you say, this need is too big. How can anyone help? But that thought doesn't go away and it haunts you and you feel like, I, I have to do something. I have to help the people of Haiti, the children of Haiti. When my wife came back from Haiti, she was overwhelmed with how much need is there. It's like, oh my gosh, it is overwhelming because you go from place to place to place and you see just the need, the need, the need. But all it takes is a little thought that turns into an explosion in the heart that changes the will of some people that becomes contagious to other people that starts to spread. And you see, God is dropping those bombs in our minds and in our hearts. Are we going to do anything about it? Oh, but he seems silent. I'm waiting for him to answer. Be courageous. Have faith in the God who has given those thoughts. Understand what his heart is and do the heart of God where you're at and you will make the difference 
difference. And it doesn't matter if your name shows up on the credits. It doesn't matter if you're acknowledged. It's going to be scary. It's going to be difficult. You too may say, God, why have you forsaken me? I don't feel you're here. This is difficult. This is hard. I don't understand it. And you will hear his voice saying, I know. I know what it is to be human. I know what it takes to make a difference. It will cost you everything you have, but it is worth all that you are if you will just understand that I am there and I will work in you. Be courageous. Don't let the silence dissuade you from my voice that is still leading you. If we are going to make a difference, the book of Esther is a great place to see how one person changed the whole nation, even though God was apparently silent. He was obviously there. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful that you know what it's like to be human. I am thankful, God, that you know our struggles and that you can understand deeply, have empathy for us in the things that we go through. And I am grateful, Lord, for these stories that help us to see how significant a person can be even when everything is going contrary. How you can show up even when you are seemingly invisible. And how you are able to reverse things and bring about change in our lives and the lives of those around us if we will be courageous if we will recognize that we are here for such a time as this. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us individually and as a community to move forward even when there is no voice. That we could fast and even when we do not hear from heaven, we can still move. And even if our names do not show up, and the credits. We do what we do because it's the right thing to do. It's what you would do. And we will follow you regardless of how we feel, of what we hear. Help us, Lord, to stay this course and to move forward. And I pray for those who are struggling, Lord, in physical ways, with sickness. I pray for those who are struggling with depression, who are entrapped because of just how they think and the struggle in their minds. And I pray you bring hope, God. I pray you help them to find help, to pull them up when you are seemingly nowhere to be found. May we help those to see you. 
And I thank you again for this book and our time here, Lord. I pray it is useful in our lives. We you take the lessons that we've learned throughout it and live better because of it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. May you recognize that you have a Savior who can be touched with the infirmities that you feel. Who has gone through the struggles you've gone through and has made it through without sin. And may the thoughts that He puts in your heart explode into courageous actions that move forward your life Regardless if you feel his presence or hear his voice, you have faith and know that he is there. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Have a happy Super Bowl, whatever you guys do. God bless you guys. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.